everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub. I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I've been thinking a lot about bears lately. I don't think I've ever mentioned bears on one of these intro things before. Which is weird, because when I was growing up, bears were a fairly ubiquitous part of the cultural landscape. You had your Fozzie Bear, your Teddy Ruxpin, your Winnie the Pooh, your Paddington, that polar bear on the side of the icy cup. And sure, a lot of these bears are still around, but who's the new hot bear on the scene? I mean, sure, there was the bear that tried to eat Leonardo DiCaprio in that movie a couple of years ago. Oh, You know what they should have called that movie? What's eating Gilbert Grape? A bear. Real missed opportunity there, Hollywood. But other than that, bears just don't seem to be the same dominant force in American popular culture that they once were. And I think I know the reason why. Bear inflation. See, when I was a kid, we were told by Zoo Books Magazine, a very reputable scientific source, that panda bears and koala bears were not actually bears. Well, I looked a couple of years ago, and they changed it back. Now panda bears are considered actual bears. So, the bear market has been flooded with new Chinese imports. And, now that there's a new type of official bear, bears in general have decreased in value. So, I have a proposal that is based on the principle of the conservation of bears. If you bring in a new bear, you gotta kick out an old bear. So from now on, the Malaysian sun bear is officially considered a large dog. This works out for everyone. The Malaysian sun bear can keep right on being adorable and eating honey and being a great animal, but it will not be invited to attend any country bear jamborees. Now, I know that seems a little bit harsh. They love a jamboree. Who doesn't? But to make up for this, a Malaysian sun bear will be introduced as a new character on Paw Patrol. So everybody's happy. You're welcome, society. Now that I've solved a problem that I just invented, let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. The bitter beer hater enjoys a beverage that's hopless. On the other hand, our listeners will enjoy the synopsis. Thanks, Devin. Defenders, number 58. April, 1978. Xenogenesis, Day of the Demons, Part 1. Agents of Fortune. Written by David Anthony Kraft. Drotted by Ed Hannigan. Inked by Klaus Jansen and Dan Green. Lettered by Joe Rosen. Colored by Phil Rash. And edited by Archie Goodwin. Defensive Lineup. Doctor Strange, Wong, Valkyrie, The Incredible Hulk, and Devil Slayer. Kinda. Previously in The Defenders. After an adventure in which he was possessed by a magic ruby that made him quote Rush lyrics, Doctor Strange quit our titular non-team. Feeling adrift after Steve's departure and seeking to further her education, Valkyrie enrolled at Empire State University. The sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger quickly befriended a pair of eccentric film students, respectively named Dollar Bill and Ledge. Both students were soon smitten with their secretly superheroic schoolmate. 
Dollar Bill attempted to impress Val by showing her a documentary he had made about the fact that he was wealthy and liked movies. But the Azir undergrad seemed unimpressed and fell asleep mere minutes into Bill's self-absorbed celluloid story. When she awoke, Ledge stopped by and accompanied the drowsy do-gooder to her subway stop, but before the pair of pals reached their destination, they were accosted by a hyper-violent campus vigilante named Lunatic with a K. The appropriately named interloper bopped Ledge on the noodle with a metal pole, fracturing the slim cinephile's skull. Valkyrie chased a malevolent masked marauder across the city, but her frenetic foe finally escaped. Meanwhile, Jack Norris, the estranged husband of Barbara Norris, whose body the sorcerously created persona Valkyrie inhabited, had decided to pursue a career with S.H.I.E.L.D. as a secret agent. The only problem was, the connubially confused self-styled super spy didn't know where S.H.I.E.L.D. was or how to apply for the job. Gadzooks! After boring Valkyrie with his bombastic biopic, how will Dollar Bill next seek to impress the crime-fighting co-ed? Will matrimonially-minded meathead Jack Norris prove he has what it takes to hack it in the high-stakes world of international espionage? And if Rushlier explained a role in Doctor Strange's decision to depart the Defenders, what band's sonic stylings could herald his return? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... By taking her to a thinly-veiled analog for the Playboy Club... No, but he does prove he has what it takes to get beat up by some robots while breaking and entering... And Blue Oyster Cult. Obviously. It's been a long day for Dr. Stephen Strange, and the Sorcerer Supreme has passed out while reading a book about telescope repair. Interesting choice of reading material. Maybe someone told him that there were tiny flame ghosts on other planets. As Steve snoozes in his chair like Big Bird, Wong thinks to himself that it sure feels like something shitty's about to happen. But if something shitty was actually about to happen... Steve's Stevie sense would start tingling and he would bolt upright in his chair, so things are probably fine. Consoled by this thought, Wong is about to leave the Sanctum Sanctimonious, when suddenly, Steve bolts upright in his chair. Uh-oh. Well, maybe Steve just realized that he forgot to clear the browser history on the Orb of Agamotto, and he's worried that Wong is about to use it to check his mystical email. The... E in email would probably stand for ethereal or something like that in this scenario. No, unfortunately, the stakes appear to be, if possible, even higher than a potentially uncomfortable moment between roommates. Seconds after Strange awakens, an oddly dressed intruder appears in the sanctum and kicks Steve in the face. The invading assailant is wearing a hooded mask from which a small beak filled with razor-sharp teeth protrudes. Gross. He also has a prehensile Dracula cape, which he uses to ensnale a startled Steve, who is still reeling from the recent face kick. Steve tries to do some magic at his tooth-beaked tormentor, but the confusingly countenanced creep's Dracula cape is apparently capable of greater feats than mere Steve strangling. Toothbeak uses his cloak to teleport to the other side of the sanctum. He then withdraws a mace from the folds of the cape, bops Steve on the noggin, and swipes the Eye of Agamotto from the now unconscious enchanter's chest. Dang. I mean, Steve just basically uses that thing as a flashlight, but I get the impression that the Eye of Agamotto is a pretty big deal. Steve's going to be pissed about that when he wakes up. Speaking of people who have been hit on the head and knocked out by aggressive strangers, across town, Ledge is in the hospital recovering from his encounter with the lunatic, Lunatic. Bruce Banner accompanies Val as she pays a call on her convalescent classmate. 
After a few minutes, the visit is interrupted by the arrival of Dollar Bill, who, after pausing briefly to sass his badly injured pal, invites Valkyrie and Bruce out for a night on the town at the Felix Club, a fancy nightclub where the servers dress in skimpy cat-themed attire. Val is hesitant at first, but Bruce eagerly accepts the invitation on both of their behalves. Meanwhile, over on Fifth Avenue, aspirational espionage enthusiast Jack Norris pulls up at the Avengers Mansion to ask the superheroes inside if they will tell him, a stranger, where he can find the world's top super spy, Nick Fury. Great plan! Jack notices that the door to the mansion is unlocked, so he decides to let himself in. Immediately after entering, the boundary-bereft blowhard is accosted, apprehended, and restrained by the array of robots and other security devices that the Avengers deploy to deal with unwanted visitors. Hooray! Later that evening, Val, Bruce, and Dollar Bill arrive at the swanky Felix Club. Val gets a weird vibe from a couple that are having a somewhat heated argument at a table near the door, but Bruce Banner's like, Chill out, Val. You're too uptight. You don't have to worry about anything sinister happening at a place like the Felix Club. It's just a classy bar where wealthy intellectuals go to get drunk and harass and objectify the waitstaff. That's why me and Bill figured it would be the perfect place to take an outspoken feminist like yourself so you can relax and unwind. Man, and I thought the Hulk was supposed to be the dumb alter ego. What makes Banner's out-of-hand dismissal of Val's unease worse is the fact that there is indeed something strange about the couple she indicated. The woman is named Vera Gemini. She is the leader of an evil cult that thinks it would be neat if demons took over the planet. Her dinner companion is Eric Simon Payne, also known as Devil Slayer. He's a Vietnam veteran who has some telepathy and telekinesis. The cult recruited him and told him that they were nice and didn't like demons at all. Then they honed his latent mental powers and gave him a magic prehensile cape that gives him access to a different dimension and lets him summon any weapon he wants. Cool. Then Eric found out that the cult had been lying to him and was a bunch of demon-loving jerks, so he turned on the cult and vowed to use the powers they bestowed upon him to destroy them. When Vera asked him to meet her at the Felix Club so that they could discuss a truce, Devil Slayer was skeptical, but I guess he must have figured, hey, free fancy dinner, because he showed up. Vera informs her former employee that he might as well give up on his plans to thwart them, because the cult is doing just great without him and doesn't miss him at all. But if he did want to come back and work on a freelance basis, they'll give him North America when they take over the world. Huh. Kind of getting some mixed signals here, Vera. Miss Gemini goes on to inform Eric that his tooth-beaked replacement in the organization has just acquired an object called the Eye of Agamotto. Say, didn't a magic cape-having tooth-beaked jerk just steal an Eye of Agamotto from Doctor Strange? What are the odds? Wonder if those guys know each other. The news of his understudy's success infuriates Devil Slayer so much that he forgets to maintain the illusion that he isn't wearing a kooky getup. As he lunges at Vera, the rest of the diners in the Felix Club see that he is wearing a blue bodysuit with a flowing orange prehensile cape. When Val sees a complimentary color-clad weirdo accosting an apparently defenseless lady, she rather reasonably assumes that he is a bad guy. She draws her magic sword Dragon Fang and reveals that she too has been concealing the fact that she was wearing outlandish attire that includes a flowing cape. 
In classic comic book fashion, each hero assumes that the other is a villain. And one of those ubiquitous superhero misunderstanding, trademark, instigated fights breaks out. The two heroes battle for a bit, but when there is a lull in the action and Vera telekinetically sucker punches Eric, Val starts to suspect that there may be more to this situation than she had initially suspected. She's about to call a timeout when her buddy Bruce gets all stressed from watching the melee and hulks out. The Emerald Avenger escalates the ambient antagonism, and a dinner club Donnybrook erupts. Hooray! The restaurant owner calls the cops, who, as we learned from Val's previous encounter with Chandu, are at the beck and call of the owners of upscale eateries. The police respond quickly, as they always do in the Marvel Universe when the supper of socialites is in peril, but not quickly enough. As they are arriving, Devil Slayer uses his magic cape to transport himself, Valkyrie, and the Hulk to some weird dimension that looks like the yellow grid from the holodeck, but with a bunch of planets floating around. A confused dollar bill is left to commiserate with the confounded cops as they ask themselves and each other the age-old question, What happened? Meanwhile, in the jungles of the southern Yucatan Peninsula, a pair of squabbling archaeologists named Mark and Sharon stumble across a remarkable discovery, an elaborate and ornately carved ancient temple. The two have little time to celebrate their success, for soon after the eldritch edifice comes into view, a cloaked figure emerges and makes a gesture instantly teleporting the would-be explorers to a sacrificial altar inside the arcane architecture. The shrouded figure thinks some Blue Oyster cult song titles to himself, but his discographical digression is disrupted by the arrival of the Toothbeaked asshole from the beginning of the comic. Old Toothbeak brags about what a good job he did swiping Steve's magic flashlight and hints that he would like a promotion, but Shrouty Face tells him to shut up and that if he wants that corner office, he's going to have to do some more evil shit. Namely, he's going to have to kill their old buddy Eric, the Devil Slayer. That sounds fine to Toothbeak, but they don't have time to discuss the benefits package because the perfidious pair is running late for that night's sacrificial ceremony. The two evil jerks scamper downstairs to the altar where Mark and Sharon are trussed up. Shrouty Face picks up a big curvy dagger, and while a bunch of other Shrouty Faced guys chant some nonsense words that are surprisingly unrelated to the Blue Oyster Cult's back catalog, he stabs the two sacrificial scholars to death in a ritual sacrifice to some demonic entities. Bummer. Back in Greenwich Village, safe in the confines of his sanctum sanctimonious, Dr. Stephen Strange watches these events unfold on his crystal ball. He turns off the image just before the knife finds its mark, because one, the psychic feedback of a ceremony summoning that much pure evil might throw his magic out of whack, and b, gross. Steve adjusts the bandages from his recent head wound and thinks to himself, Hmm, the last time these shrouty faces got up to their shenanigans, my teacher the Ancient One used the Eye of Agamotto to thwart them. Maybe I could... No, that's right. That toothbeaked guy just swiped it. Darn. If I didn't know better, it would almost seem as though I had fucked up. Also, now I'll have to get a new flashlight. To be continued. I should probably ease up on Steve for mostly using the Eye of Agamotto as a flashlight. A couple of years ago, Lisa got one of those Amazon Echoes as a Christmas present. And we pretty much use that exclusively as a kitchen timer. Well, that and making it play Anti Up by M.O.P. Alexa, play Anti Up by M.O.P.
And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm uh, a little disappointed that it's raining right now. I thought you were into that. In general, I am, but I've cut my lawn, like, twice recently, Mm. and I thought it would die now. And this rain, it's just going to keep growing now. Oh, yeah, no, that's what lawns do when you have them. (sighs) I can't abide by it. No lawns. Tough but fair. (laughs) That's my stance. It's a good stance. Do you remember how hard we worked to put in a lawn at your old place and then it went away? I'm sorry. That's okay. You said a funny thing, too. Do you remember what you said when you were mad that I made the lawn go away? No. You you shook your head and muttered, from gravel to gravel. (laughs) How poetic. Well, because it was a, what do you call like a hard-packed gravel driveway that Uh you you helped me dig all that out and replace it with a lawn, and Uh then I killed the lawn, and then I put down some lovely river (laughs) rock. We got a heck of a comic book to read. I liked it. This was a pie not made out of steel for me. I felt the same way. I liked it the first time I read it. But then, I read it while listening to Agents of Fortune by Blue Oyster Cult. I did as well. And I found that that made me 20% higher, dude. (laughs) (laughs) I can't even remember what it was that makes you 20% higher. I was told in high school that if you smoke a cigarette, After you smoke weed, it increases the high like 23%. Boy, that's very precise. I felt like there was a lot of that kind of lingo going around back then. Like these Mm. people were uh, self-styled high-intists, I guess, uh, to to coin a term. It's like that's not really an objective thing you can measure, at least not at your current state of development, fellow teen. And not without tools of some sort. No, we're a control group. Yeah. At the very least. But I do believe that reading this issue while listening to Blue Oyster Cult did make me 20% higher. So, uh, yeah, this issue is dedicated to Eric Bloom of Blue Oyster Cult, and it is peppered with Blue Oyster Cult references. Mm-hmm. What ones did you notice? Uh, I noticed the, uh, the title of the bad guy group. Sure. The Agents of Fortune. Mm-hmm. I noticed that one of said agents was Vera Gemini? (laughs) Gemini? Yeah, it's spelled Vera Gemini. I always thought it was Vera Gemini. But listening to the song, The Revenge of Vera Gemini, is that what it's called? On the... uh, Revenge or Curse of or something? Yeah. He pronounces it Gemini. He only says it once at the end. Throughout the song, he's calling her uh, Vera Marie. Mm -hmm. And then I think either just to make it rhyme with Marie or... Because he has only seen the word Gemini written down and never heard it pronounced. He, uh, he sings very clearly, Vera Gemini. Mm-hmm. Interesting touch. Yeah, I think I cocked my head to the side and said, huh, <laughs> at that point. Yeah, I think I did too. It was one of a number of things about the book that made me cock my head to one side and say, huh? But yeah, as you said, I did overall enjoy it very, very much. The other Blue Oyster Cult references, let's see, I'm just going to read them real quick. At the beginning of the book, Doctor Strange is reading a book called Workshop of the Telescopes, which is a older Blue Oyster Cult album. Agents of Fortune, Vera Gemini, you noticed. There is a couple of paragraphs on page 30 
where a ton of song titles are referenced. And as I was reading it, I wondered if that was the case before I had done the research on like Blue Oyster Cult, which I was largely unfamiliar with. I, I definitely knew the uh, Don't Fear the Reaper and Go Go Godzilla, but... The big two. Right. But I wasn't familiar with a lot of their back catalog. And even not knowing that in advance, I felt like these two paragraphs had to be some kind of references to Blue Oyster Cult just because they didn't make sense. Okay. I'm glad that you're bringing this up because that page in general had a lot of confusing bits. Yeah. There's an Orko-looking dude. Like a sinister taller Orko, but an Orko-y nonetheless, who's pacing back and forth in the cult's temple. Padding through the timeless corridors, the stealthy figure is possessed of thoughts that are human in pattern, yet serenely subhuman in cadence. Dominance and submission, the red and the black, they become an unspoken litany of a career of evil, ancient and profane. But even the thoughts of an extraterrestrial intelligence can be interrupted by a human agent. He's interrupted. So you've returned with the prize. Of course, or I wouldn't have returned at all. The eye has been harvested for the cult and for Xenogenesis. I was honestly surprised that Xenogenesis wasn't a Blue Oyster Cult reference. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you the things that were in that paragraph or two. Domination and Submission? Is Domin that a Blue Oyster Dominance cult and Submission is a Blue okay. Oyster Cult song. Uh, Extraterrestrial Intelligence is on the Agents of Fortune album. Uh, Subhuman is a Blue Oyster Cult song. Okay. Career of Evil is one. Harvester of Eyes is one. The Red and the Black is one. No shit. Yeah. So that is just chock-a-block with Blue Oyster Cult references. Really just kind of jammed in there. And part of me appreciated that, but part of me was just like, maybe you could have spread them out a little bit more and not one. tried to work them all into a couple of sentences because it didn't make sense outside of them being song references. And the final one is that we get the title of the next issue, which is going to be Tyranny and Mutation, which is another Blue Oyster Cult album. Oh, far out. So did you notice anything big missing from those Blue Oyster Cult songs? Well, there was the big two that we mentioned, but right. I guess that would be two. Go-Go Godzilla hadn't oh, come yes. out yet. Oh, okay. But Don't Fear the Reaper was on the album Agents of Fortune. I don't think it was excluded because it was too obvious. No copyrights or some shit? No. About a year ago, David Anthony Kraft had dedicated a different issue to the Blue Oyster Cult, and that issue was named Don't Fear the Reaper. Oh, right. Yeah. That featured the premiere of the character Devil Slayer. And that's uh, this guy? And that's the this uh, and, uh, the, blue. Yeah, orange and blue guy, Devil Slayer. What did you think of Devil Slayer? Um, I, I don't know. Like so many situations in these books, a little bit of upfront communication could have saved a lot of broken furniture and collateral damage and yeah, you the, name it. the trope of superhero misunderstanding does wear a little bit thin. This particular misunderstanding does actually tie in with Devil Slayer's backstory. Like I said, Devil Slayer first showed up in a different issue that was called Don't Fear the Reaper. It was in Marvel Spotlight number 33. And that was kind of his first appearance, which I want to get back to later why it was only kind of. He was squaring off against another Bronze Age mainstay character, Deathlock, who is a zombie cyborg soldier robot man. Hmm. But it was kind of a neat story. The backstory to the Devil Slayer character is he is Eric Simon Payne, 
He is ESP. A, yeah. His backstory is almost Skateman-esque in its complications. But real quick, Vietnam vet has always had some low-grade telepathy. Came back from Vietnam, pretty horrified by his experiences in the war. Rather than joining a roller derby, the way a lot of people would, mm-hmm. he started drinking too much. Mm-hmm. His wife left him because of that. And then he took a job as an assassin. As an assassin, he fell in league with this group, the Agents of Fortune. They helped him develop his psychic powers, gave him a fancy cloak from which he can pull any weapon from any era, and also use it to teleport and transport things to this other dimension. And that's basically his deal. Whoa. The cloak also does the Chinese ghost story, grab anything you want with your fabric thing. Oh, that's totally true. Yes, he, it, once again, I believe we discussed it when Raven developed this power with, uh, without any real explanation as Sartoriomancy, if memory serves. That could be. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's kind of a neat character. It's amazing to me that they got all of that backstory more or less into a couple of pages of a different story. And that was what, struck me as a little bit Skateman-esque about it. I said that it was kind of his first appearance. The reason for that is he really first appeared in a comic book by a different company that David Anthony Kraft had written. In the early 70s, there was a company called Atlas Comics, which I do kind of want to get into a little bit, but I don't want to have it be a huge digression. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of one, though, so sorry. There's going to be, like, a lecture class element to this. Um, so I'll get my beer. Hold on. I appreciate that. Sorry. Atlas Comics was a company that was started in the 70s and ended in the 70s. It was only around for, I think, a little bit over a year, around 1975. It was started by the guy who had been the original owner of Marvel Comics, Martin Goodman. He was the publisher. He wasn't really involved in the creative aspects of the company. He was also Stan Lee's uncle, which was how Stan Lee got the job. So he started a company in the 40s that was, I believe, originally called Timely, and then in the 50s it was called Atlas Comics, and then it changed to Marvel later on. Marvel really started getting popular again early 60s with the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and uh, all of the Jack Kirby Stan Lee creations and Steve Ditko Stan Lee creations from that era. And by the late 60s was a very profitable company, so Martin Goodman sold it for a huge profit. Part of the conditions of sale, at least as he was concerned, although, although I don't think it was explicit in the contract, was that his son Chip Goodman would kind of take over for him as publisher. The problem was, by all accounts, Chip Goodman was very bad at his job. Mm. They tried to let him take over some aspects of Marvel Comics, and his main creative contribution, anecdotally, that is the only one that I remember, is he was editing a Western comic, and he sent it back after it was done and said, this is okay, but I want all of the bad guys to be wearing animal masks. And the people asked him, rather reasonably, because the comic was finished at this point, why? And his response was, I don't know, maybe it'll sell more issues? Oh, no. Yeah, so that was the guy that Martin Goodman had wanted to leave in charge of the company. The people that took over the company were like, no, we're not going to do that. And after a couple years, they fired him. That pissed off Martin Goodman, so in retaliation, he started his own comic book company with the idea of hurting Marvel's sales, and potentially putting them out of business. 
the problem was he kind of didn't know what he was doing in terms of running a company. He had kind of lucked onto Marvel Comics in a lot of ways and the things that made it successful. So when he started Atlas Comics, he brought over Stan Lee's brother, Larry, to be the editor-in-chief and hired another guy from Warren Comics to head up the other titles. But he did a weird thing where he put Larry Lieber, who had no experience with black and white comics, in charge of all the black and white comics, and he put the other guy, whose name escapes me, i that's going to bug me, but he put him in charge of all of the color comics, even though he had no experience doing color comics. I don't know how much of a different that, difference that makes, but the company, they put out a ton of titles. They put out, I think, 31 different titles. None of them lasted more than four issues. They brought on a ton of, like, top-tier talent and paid them really, really well and instituted policies that the other big two companies would not do. One of them was returning original artwork to the artists, which had been something that a number of artists had been lobbying for. But they brought on, like, Neil Adams and Steve Ditko and Wally Wood and uh, David Anthony Kraft, who was young and getting started but still was establishing himself as a name as a writer, and Gary Friedrich, and Mike Sikowski, and Howard Chaikin, and a bunch of big-name talent, paid them a ton, and the comics were unfortunately, for the most part, not very good. They were rushed, and when the sales were low for the first set of them, they kind of panicked and made these sweeping editorial decisions that were really, really damaging to any idea of building a reader base. Uh, There was a comic called... The first issue of it was called Target. The second issue of it was called John Target Manhunter. And the third issue of it was called Manhunter. And that was the only three issues there were. Mm. But there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. There was another that was called uh, Phoenix, and then it became Phoenix the Protector, and then The Protector. Again, all within the course of like two or three issues. There were a couple of okay ones. Uh, One of them was Demon Hunter which is the exact same thing as Devil Slayer, which was uh, by David Anthony Kraft. Like I said, the the company failed really, really quickly, but it kind of had a significant overall influence in terms of increasing page rates for artists and instituting the policy of returning original artwork. Unfortunately, a lot of the artwork was stolen, so even though that was their policy, they weren't able to actually return it. But the idea of that was a pretty big deal for a lot of the artists and eventually both DC and Marvel started doing that. DC and Marvel were also in collusion at the time. Stanley went to Carmen Infantino, who was the uh, editor-in-chief of DC Comics at the time, and they conspired to set wages at a fairly low rate between the two, which is some bullshit. That's not allowed. No, it isn't, and that actually led to Roy Thomas quitting Marvel Comics. But... Yeah, there was just a ton of what I find really fascinating stuff going on with the industry at the time. But the fact that the big two companies did need to start after this returning artwork to artists led to a lot of changes in comic books themselves. I don't know if this is still the case, but I know for a long time the artists were making a lot more money reselling their original artwork than they were as a a page rate for the comic books. Hmm. Um, it was a really good way for them to supplement their incomes. But that meant that when the writers, the artists were writing their own titles, they would sometimes start to make more splash pages 
because they could sell those for a lot more than a page where it's like all dialogue. Mm. And maybe partly as a result of that, by the 90s, you get these issues that are like all splash pages pretty much. And it makes a creative difference in the work. Mm. I mean, I'm not definitely not saying that it's a bad thing that artists have their work returned. And I don't think it's even necessarily a bad thing to have more splash pages in a comic. But I do think it's interesting really watching the ripple effects of a company that was not around for very long, that did not have particularly high sales or despite the talents involved, for the most part, very high quality products, had this ripple effect on the industry that you're still seeing today. That is interesting. That's a really brief nutshell encapsulation of the Atlas Comics story. It is interesting, last year, the characters that were in Atlas Comics, like the Atlas Universe, which has been defunct for, like, since 75, sold to a production company for $60 million. What? And they're going to, I guess, make movies based on some of these characters, which is really weird because most of the characters were fairly derivative of other comic book titles. Like, instead of the Hulk, you had the Brute. And, I mean, there were some changes. The Brute ate people a fair amount, which the Hulk didn't. Hmm. But, like, and you had Wolf the Barbarian instead of Conan the Barbarian. There were a couple of characters that were more, a little bit more unique. One of them was Demon Hunter, who is now Devil Slayer. Um, another one was Scorpion, who was Howard Chaykin's creation, which he reworked as Dominic Fortune, and also brought over to Marvel Comics. But it is also kind of ironic that... Marvel at the time was looking into lawyers to sue Atlas Comics for similarities in their characters. And then the company went out of business and they had no compunctions about just being like, oh, well, uh, yeah, bring those characters over. Whatever. Crazy. But yeah, that's, uh, that's a little bit about Devil Slayer's backstory and Atlas Comics and all of that shit. So lecture concluded. Well, nice work. Thanks. We talked about the Blue Oyster Cult a bit. If you were to make a comic book that was an homage to a band or that incorporated aspects of a band's music or an album into an existing comic book, I feel like Blue Oyster Cult was a pretty decent choice for the most part. It, it fits the theme of the story that's being told pretty well. Mm -hmm. And we saw that David Anthony Kraft did that with Rush before. Mm -hmm. If you were to do that with a comic book, what title would you use and what uh, music? Yeah, I, I, Rush was the first one that came to mind, but, you know, it's been done. But, right. You know, had the bite tour of the <laughs> Space Ice Dog or whatever. and He was a snow dog, you know that. That snow dog. Yeah, that made me think of the whole Rainbow Bridge uh, thing, so. Ooh, well, Dio? What? No, no, Rainbow oh. Bridge, like uh, the Thor. Oh, yeah, 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 sorry. Stuff. I was Rainbow in the Dark. Yeah. I mean, I guess the bridge could be in the dark. A rainbow in the dark. That's such a stupid... I love Dio, but come on, man. You can't have a rainbow in the dark. I, I think, honestly, Dio would be a pretty decent choice for, for this. Whew. I just... I um, can't believe that didn't occur to me. That was my first uh, arena concert. Was uh, the, really? the Holy Diver uh, tour. Nice. Yeah. Where was that? Cumberland County Civic Center. Nice. Yeah, Maine. Uh, my, my first big arena rock show was uh, Joe Walsh opening for the Doobie Brothers. Oh, Great wow. Woods, Massachusetts. Oh, that's cool. It was. 
And just to set the stage, it was like 1989. Mm. <laughs> so well after the heyday of either of those musical acts, but I was super into the Doobie Brothers when I was in junior high. Was it one of those things where you just, you find you know all the lyrics to all the songs and you didn't even know you did? Um, I really don't remember. I know that like most of my peers did not share my enthusiasm for the Doobie Brothers. Oh no, I was like they, old people's They were music. way more into like new kids on the block. Ugh. But uh, yeah, so my first thought with this was the Wu-Tang Clan. But I was like, you know what? Actually, I feel like they are actually putting in more work in establishing their characters and stories. And so while I would love to read a Wu-Tang comic, in theory, although I wasn't that crazy about the Method Man comic book where he was a private investigator who fought sewer alligators. But I feel like that's kind of too easy a choice. What, what, did, what did you end up with? So I didn't really frame it in terms of the band members being part of the comic book which right if we... they, they don't have to be you can interpret this okay, however if we, you want. if we do that it just gets kind of weird and creepy but uh-huh. so as a kid i was reading a lot of elf quest and listening to a lot of led zeppelin oh and that stuff totally goes together musically and thematically in my mind riding around on wolves and i can see that what would you title an issue oh uh, we'd have a uh, battle of evermore Oh, totally. For sure. We'd probably have a, a no quarter, mm. you know, good snowy battle, maybe a Houses of the Holy. Ooh, yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. No, that's very Elf Quest. That's a nice choice. Yeah, yeah, that just popped to mind from stuff I was into when I was a kid. I also read a few issues of Kazar, the Jungle Barbarian Guy comic. Yeah, he lives in the Savage Land. He's got a saber-toothed tiger. Mm-hmm. But... As a kid, I was always like, oh man, this is, he's just so harsh and so violent and he just needs to get chilled out. So I was thinking like a Peter Tosh kind of influence would be good. I don't know, legalize it's probably too political for Kazar, <laughs> right. but... Well, and I mean, he lives in the Savage Land where I don't think there are any laws except for the law of the jungle. Yeah, so I don't really know where I'm going with that one, but it that I was just... Like, you know, Kazar needs mm-hmm. to relax a little bit. Sure. Maybe Peter Tosh would be a good I think that's choice. a solid choice. My initial thought was, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but I would want like a, uh, a Scooby-Doo style team up between the 70s era Teen Titans. I would want an Aqualad centric story where they team up with Parliament to fight Sir Nose Devoid of Funk. <laughs> I mean, it's obvious. He never could swim. He, he doesn't want to get in the water. Mm-hmm. But then he realizes that it feels good. And I, I feel like that would be like a really fun mashup. And also, I feel like a lot of the members of Parliament might just slap the shit out of Speedy. Oh, yeah. Which I think would be really fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, get like, get Mal playing the, uh, the shofar on yeah. the mothership. Yeah, he and Bootsy could yeah. have a little shofar bass duet. I mean, yeah, obviously. So that was my first thought. My thing that I ended up getting really excited about the idea of doing, though, is kind of obscure for both choices. But there is a DC character called Johnny Double, who I love. He only showed up a few times. Uh, He was created by Marv Wolfman in 68. And he was like a private investigator who was down on his luck, kind of perpetually down on his luck. And he spoke in a combination of like hipster slang and film noir detective cliches, but set in like kind of psychedelic, like 60s San Francisco. Jeebus. And I would love the idea of him 
having a psychedelic film noir story entitled Total Destruction to Your Mind and have it all be Swamp Dog lyrics interspersed with it. Like the combination of like psychedelia influenced stuff and there's a couple of blues tracks on the album too. So like really tie in the him being down on his luck, but then like have him saying things maybe while he's under the influence, maybe he's been dosed by a, by a dame and ends up like spirit dust your head color red sparkle your insides pink with pleasure um whoa yeah like (laughs) i love the idea of a johnny double one shot called total destruction to your mind that is heavily influenced by swamp dog Uh, i think that would be really cool swamp dog is some weird shit i love swamp dog psychedelic soul music from like 19 69 i think 70 if you guys are unfamiliar you should check it out total destruction to your mind is a great album and i think would be a great johnny double story a real trip Mm -hmm. one of the fun things that we encounter in this book is the return of jack norris which i would not necessarily (laughs) say is always a fun thing but in this issue he's such a chump and i loved it it was a delight My only issue with it was I just can't give him the credit for trying to track down Nick Fury in the way that he did. You don't think he would have had that clever idea? No. I love how dumb his thought process is, though, that he's like, oh, their door is unlocked. I better just go in and tell them. What an idiot. I sometimes leave my door unlocked. I would hate it if some random stranger came in to tell me that I had left my door unlocked. Well, you better set some traps. That's my plan. Yeah, Iron Man has set a bunch of traps, and Jack Norris gets caught in them. There's, like, a bunch of robot arms that grab him, and there's some lasers and shit. But it would be kind of nice if it was just a Home Alone situation. And just like it was paint cans and toy trains and pizza boxes. It's been a while since I've seen that movie. I've never seen it. Oh. I I know the There's a lot of elaborate death traps in the movie that this uh, small child places around his house to protect his parents' belongings from burglars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I, I have the broad strokes. The important thing to remember is that these traps are very, very deadly. Mm -hmm. And so mostly I think maybe I'm just saying I would have liked it if the Avengers had accidentally killed Jack Norris. Gotta believe they came kind of close. What was his his logic, though, was like, he was like, they had a fight once and Nick Fury was involved, some peripherally, therefore, if I go to their headquarters, they'll know where to find him. I think the last time he was at the Avengers mansion, the Avengers had gotten a call from the life model decoy that was posing as Nick Fury, so he assumed that they had some connection to Nick Fury. Okay. Yeah, I, it's that's, a, that's it's dumb logic. I still don't think he would have even put that together. That's that's how little <laughs> respect I have for, for Norris's intellect. So you probably wouldn't hire him for your super spy agency. Oh, if I had some money to burn and some like hidden cameras, <laughs> you bet I would. That's comedy gold right there. Is Dollar Bill the new Kyle? Like, he's now just the rich guy who's throwing money and things hanging out with the Defenders. Kyle isn't in this issue. The blurb at the very end says in the next issue, Kyle gets some new powers. I don't think so. You don't think Dollar Bill is the new Kyle? He does not assume authority? No, but he does just kind of not know how to do anything but throw money around. Yeah, no, Kyle's more complexly bad than that. Okay. Dollar Bill isn't great in this issue. Nope. The way he's like, is taunting Ledge, who has had his cranium shattered 
in previous issues. And then he's just like, hey, I'm going to take this girl you like out on a date. Shame you can't come. You look like the mummy. Dick move, Dollar Bill. Yeah, he's weird about things in the sense that, I don't know, I haven't, I guess, been exposed to the situation of being taken out to a fancy place by people that have a lot of money to throw around. But my assumption is that they don't, once you get there, be like, hey, pretty good, huh? I'm throwing a lot of money around at this fancy place. Like, they don't... I think they might. You think so? I think so. I don't have a high opinion of the wealthy. I don't know. It just seems like unnecessary that they would do that, which he does. Yeah. I liked how excited Bruce Banner was to be taken out for a night on the town. Well, sure. Like... Val is, like, having some objections, and he's just like, no, that sounds great. Yeah, take me to a fancy club. Buy me some drinks. Mm -hmm. I love to party. Good for Bruce Bob Banner (laughs) getting out and having a night on the town. So, yeah, that's the other thing that comes up. The rotating first names of the Hulk. He's introduced as Dr. Robert Bruce Banner, and Dollar Bill assumes that his nickname is Bob, which I liked, and he keeps calling him Dr. Bob. Which is kind of charming. That's a cute nickname for the Hulk. It is. Canonically, his name is Robert Bruce Banner. I'd expect... And then uh... he's David Banner on the TV show. The reason is, Stan Lee liked to give characters alliterative names because he could remember them easier, but he still forgot. And so while he had initially named the character Bruce Banner, he later referred to him as Bob Banner... And then had to go back and explain that, well, that's technically his full name, is Robert Bruce Banner, uh, potentially named after Robert the Bruce. Oh my goodness. That's funny. I like that kind of, like, full steam ahead retcon that's like, oh, I said that? Well, both things are true. I didn't make a mistake. Why did Double Slayer opt to meet Vera Gemini at this, like, uh kind of, I don't know, Hugh Hefner yeah, club it, thing to, to tell her to, you know, go to hell, essentially. I, that seemed like a weird choice. It does seem like a weird choice. My suspicion is that nobody wants to wreck a fancy restaurant in the Marvel Universe. Uh, we saw the consequences Unless when Val Valkyrie. did it before, yeah. and the guy calls the cops immediately on when his fancy restaurant starts to get wrecked in this one, too. I think that was like their idea that it would be neutral ground because there could be consequences if either of them step out of line. It's like a church in Highlander. Exactly. It's mm. holy ground. Yeah. The Felix Club. <laughs> I loved that it was called the Felix Club. It's clearly supposed to be a Playboy Club style place, except for the women are dressed not as sexy bunny rabbits, but as sexy cats. And because of that, it is called the Felix Club. I assume because Felix the Cat was the most popular cartoon cat character at the time. What's interesting is this issue came out in 1978, in April of 70. It's the April 78 issue. Just a few months later... Garfield started being nationally syndicated. How close was this to being called the Garfield Club and having burlesque-esque Garfield costumes on sexy lady servers who are probably, one can only assume, going to be serving, like, upscale lasagna and probably the club is closed on Mondays. No spiders allowed. Um, you got some kind of a floor act where Odie gets kicked off of a piano. Or possibly some of the servers are dressed in sexy Odie costumes? Oh, no. No Odies 
allowed, but I don't know, maybe some normals to create a <laughs> sense of competition. Too. Probably a lot of coffee drinks. Mm-hmm. He likes coffee. Mm-hmm. Coffee special is the Arbuckle. <laughs> I don't know why that's the one that grossed me. <laughs> John Arbuckle. <laughs> no thanks. Get him out of my Garfield club. Bring back the ladies in the normal costume. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> Arguing with you, Arlene, is like swatting flies with a Buick. Is that a Garfield quote? Yeah. Wow. That's been in my head for a long time. Does it feel good to let it out? I didn't know what was there. It just kind of, that's scary. Corey, you're free now. Oh, thank gosh. There was a weird touch in here where I would have to assume that either David Anthony Kraft or Ed Hannigan, who does the art in this issue, uh, must know somebody from Towner, North Dakota named Marilyn. There's a character in this who works at the Felix Club, which... So close to being the Garfield Club. Named Marilyn, who is trying to, looks like, kind of give the Heimlich maneuver to Bruce Banner as he's passing out. Um, And when he turns into the Hulk, she says, they didn't prepare me for this in Towner, North Dakota. I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. That is such a specific reference. I looked it up. Towner, North Dakota has a population of 500. Whoa. And I wouldn't think it necessarily had anything to do with a character being named Marilyn, except for on the cover of the issue, Dollar Bill is wearing a red sweatshirt that has a picture of a blonde person. It's kind of tough to tell. It almost looks like Dennis the Menace, uh, just because it is a very loose sketch. But it is clearly a blonde person, and it says Marilyn under it. Hmm. So either it is unconnected and he's wearing a Marilyn Monroe sweatshirt, or... This is an homage to a friend they had named Marilyn. Seemed like a weird touch to insert, but I thought that was kind of fun. If I had a nationally published comic, I would maybe try to put my friends in it. Yeah, sure. It'd be fun. Yeah. Drop a towner. Why not? There's a scene towards the end where a couple named Mark and Sharon are exploring the jungle surrounding the Agents of Fortune's hidden temple and they end up getting abducted and i believe they're the probably the it's implied the couple that gets sacrificed at the end were you relieved that elf with a gun didn't kill them oh jesus uh that didn't occur to me but now that you mention it sure i was so sure that was what was going to happen because it was the same kind of setup just a couple we've never seen before she's nagging him and he is kind of spineless and doesn't assert himself It had all of those touches the way Gerber would establish a couple that was about to get murdered by Elf with a Gun. That it was a relief for me when cultists sacrificed them at the end instead. It's the same kind of mean-spiritedness, but I, I appreciated that they were at least afforded the dignity of not being murdered by one of Santa's elves with a gun. I still don't get it, and I don't like it. That's fair. I'm happy not to have seen the Elf with a Gun for many issues now. He is coming back eventually. Uh, Sorry. What did you think of the artwork in this issue? I thought it was it was pretty good, especially the scenes that dealt with the other dimensionality. Um, there's a really yeah, there's a couple of really nice scenes of that. The opening pages I really enjoyed, and the opening pages are inked by Klaus Janssen. Mm-hmm. The rest of the issue. Except for maybe the closing pages, I'm a little bit uncertain about that because those have some 
Jansen-like touches to them. But with those exceptions, the rest is done by, inked by Dan Green. And the art is, as I said, by Ed Hannigan. I'm not crazy in general about Ed Hannigan's art. It's okay, I think he does really interesting layouts, and he, he improves as an artist. He was one of the creators of Cloak and Dagger, which I enjoyed, and I liked his work on that. A lot of his work in this seems just a little bit unpolished, and I don't know if that's him still developing as an artist, or if it was a sign that, as with having multiple inkers on it, maybe this issue was a little bit behind schedule and got rushed. Mm-hmm. Overall, I have it in my head that I don't like Ed Hannigan very much. I think this issue was was a pretty strong outing for him. Yeah, it was, the layout was really pretty cool. The fight scene and the uh, Garfield, I mean the... Uh, Felix. The Felix. Yeah. It was good. That was, it was a cool fight scene. And it is a fun touch having the like the prehensile cloak, the sartorial mancy, is, uh, is a fun habit to play with. You, you see some of that too in the... Uh, creepy birdman who i believe is known as the agent of fortune okay can we talk about that fucking that is the stupidest he looks like a evil angry chicken not just an evil angry chicken because he has a beak that has teeth inside of it which is terrifying but also if you have that as a feature of your head that you cut holes out of the mask to accommodate why are you wearing a fucking mask it's not like you're going to get picked out of a lineup and have somebody be like, oh, I know that guy does have a beak with teeth in it, but the guy I saw was wearing a mask could be a totally different dude with a beak with fucking teeth in it. I thought it was a really goofy Lucha Libre mask. Oh, you thought that the beak yeah, with teeth just... mouth was part of the mask? Yeah. Oh, I thought he just had like kind of a cardinal's head and then was wearing a mask over it. Either way, it's a really stupid looking... I mean, intimidating. It threw Steve for a loop. Well, yeah, I guess if you had just been woken up after reading your Blue Oyster Cult book and <laughs> some chicken-faced man jumps in and starts beating you, it's going to be uh, disorienting. Yeah. You think that's all part of the mask? It could be. I don't know. Either way, dumb look. He also has just a giant jewel over his uh, crotch, which... I feel like if you know that you're going to be having a lot of combat, you don't necessarily want to be drawing attention to that region. So, just two other quick notes about the... I keep wanting to call it the the Felix. It's a multicultural workplace. Yeah? Yeah. We have what I'm pretty sure are at least a a French and an Italian um, staff member, judging by the accent work. Oh! We have uh, the waiter... Or Major D, I'm not sure what his role is, but who's got a very strong French accent, you can tell because he says the word the, uh, Z-E-E. Oh, that could be any European language. Okay, but then you got the guy in the kitchen who, when he's startled by the fight, says, Mamma mia! (laughs) I gotta go with Italian. Yeah, I think that's probably... It's subtle, but I think... I think the chef saying, Mamma mia, may be a sign that he is Italian. I mean, the accent work is usually pretty subtle <laughs> in these things, but that one was a dead right. giveaway. We've talked about Black Belt Jones, right? Oh, I'm sure it's come up. I'm sure it has. Many the, times. The, the, the non-Italians <laughs> so playing Italians in that movie that are, <laughs> that are sitting down to a meal, and one of them says, Mamma mia, I'm trying to eat my spaghetti over here. It's pretty awful. <laughs> 
Not to detract from what's a pretty fun movie. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, some horrible, horrible homophobic slurs aside. Oh, there's so many Generally, a really fun movie. Scatman Crothers runs a dojo. That's a good time. Mm. Well, are you ready to get into the minutia? Sure. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, mm-hmm. in this issue, we are introduced to Eric Simon Payne, the Devil Slayer. As you noted, his initials are ESP, and his superpower, at least initially, before it gets refined and he gets the shadow cloak, is ESP. So, I put to you the question, having superpowers based on your initials, behold or be gone? Do you want superpowers based on your initials? Dang, that's a good question. Now, for me, it was a pretty easy answer. Uh, My initials are NDH. Not a ton associated with that. The main thing that I was able to come up with is a subgenre of music that is uh, Neue Deutsche Hörte, or (laughs) the New German Hardness, Uh, which is uh, bands that... It was a movement that started in the 90s. It was bands like... KMFDM and Rammstein, kind of a industrial metal type K, thing. K is for compressor. Mm. They do a lovely cover of uh, The Girl from Ipanema. Oh, very nice. Yeah. I'm okay with that music. It's not my particular favorite. I don't know that I would want superpowers based on it. I guess with the Rammstein thing, maybe some kind of a berserker power. For me, it's a begone. But your initials are C-A-W or Caw. So I would assume you have bird powers. Now, I know you've had your differences with birds in the past, as we both have. Mm. But flight, pooping on people, terrifying me, behold or be gone. Be gone, man. Fuck that. Oh, but you could use their powers for good, like Beaky. Nope. Uh, it's, it's a straight be gone for you just on general principle. Yep. Wow. You're a stronger man than I. Flying would be pretty awesome. Uh-huh. But there would just be so many birds to contend with up there. Oh, there are birds up there. That's true. When I was, I was driving back from uh, from Canada about a week ago, we were on the ferry, and uh, there's these uh, those posts that come up out of the water, like at the piers, mm-hmm. um, with these large kind of pelican-looking, there were these dark seabirds, and they were just such assholes to each other. I watched one... I, or a group of them gang up on another one and kick him off the pier. And then a couple of them, it might have been coincidence, but I'm pretty sure they pooped on him. Oh, And boy. it was like a violent bird poop. Wow. Yeah, and he fell in the water. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, that poor bastard. See, I was thinking about I don't want to take part in that kind of malarkey. Not even if it's against birds? Well, no. Okay. Then you're just as bad as they are. I don't think that necessarily stands to reason. I was thinking about that because I was thinking about Beaky recently and uh, how much I love that little fictional pelican. Um, And I was wondering why I love this fictional pelican so much. I think part of it comes down to, you remember that video we saw? Because he killed Jim Morrison. (laughs) Well, that's part of it too, yes. (laughs) But you remember that video that we saw that was going around of a, a pelican swallowing a pigeon hole? Yeah. I feel like Beaky is kind of the... Omar Little of the bird world. Beaky coming. <laughs> Beaky coming. Like, yeah, he's a bird, but he's a bird who only ki- 
kills other birds. Bad other birds. Right. So he's like a criminal who robs drug dealers. Mm -hmm. And I I can really respect that about Beaky. And I really like the idea of Beaky whistling and having the other birds say, Beaky coming! Yeah, yeah, Farmer in the Dell. Pretty creepy when a pelican whistles it. (laughs) Beaky, you best not miss. I like Beaky, but not down. What if you had a giant pouch that you could help mix cement in and say it's a living? Not be a pretty good power. Nope. Well, then it's a, it, it's a straight pair of begons for us. I've never liked that my initials are the crow sound. It occurred to me at a very young age. Yeah. And I was like, hmm. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to bring up any old wounds. Not my favorite bird. <laughs> Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion do you feel are worthy of our focus? So we mentioned already uh, Dollar Bill's sweater. That's Mm -hmm. pretty crazy. But uh, when they come to the hospital so he can give his comatose buddy a hard time and take everybody to the Garfield, he's wearing a pretty cool 70s looking get up he is he's perhaps wearing the same sweater uh it does look like he's wearing a red turtleneck sweater but with a tan leisure suit over it and it's a pretty charming look i actually like that a lot i also did want to discuss a little bit the potential birdman potential lucha libre mask guy's outfit it is very ornate he as we discussed has the kind of diamond shaped sash around his middle that has a giant ruby right over his crotch He has some uh, light purple leggings and then purple boots and jacket and then has his own cloak of shadows, not unlike the Devil Slayers. The difference in his is that it has a very ornate collar that is a high collar but has all these weird little designs and cutouts. And when he looks to either side, it looks like his beak is enormous. Mm Mm-hmm. And it threw me a couple of times when we saw it. And I wonder if that's an intentional choice on his part. If that's like a, uh, like the spots on a moth that look like eyeballs or something. If that's to intimidate people that he turns to his head, it looks like he has a much larger beak than he actually has. I think it's an interesting choice. It's also a dumb outfit. It's so stupid. And there's the, uh, the Garfield Club outfits, which are, are fine. They're basically the Playboy Bunny outfits, except for with cat ears and cat tails instead be much better if those were orange and black striped and maybe had half asleep eyeballs as part of it <laughs> but uh they're fine i guess in the uh hospital we get to see dr bob in a kind of fuchsia i mean I guess it's purple right because that's what his pants turn into but right um i don't recall seeing a banner in the the full like suit no, we before. never see the uh, the top part of the suit. I like that it, it makes more sense that he just wears purple suits around rather than he just has purple jeans that he wears all the time that get made into unintentional jorts by his hulking out. I enjoyed that. Yeah, pretty cool. What was your favorite sound effect? I had a few choices. I think my favorite one was Strange getting kicked right at the outset by the chicken-faced man. And it, the kick makes the noise splark. Splock was pretty good, especially because it does sound kind of bird-themed, like a bark. And I, I liked that, and I also did kind of enjoy seeing Steve getting kicked in the head. It wasn't my favorite, though. Uh, one of my, my second favorite, I think, is a zish crack, mm. where it is really small font of zish 
that is bisecting the giant traditional sound effect of crack. It's, I believe, a sword swipe that is breaking a chair. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was actually pretty innovative, and I appreciated that. But I think my favorite is when Vera Gemini is smacking Devil Slayer with a chair. It makes the noise, kabash! Mm. And I like that because it's really putting the kibosh on his plans, and it makes the noise, kabash. It's pretty good. Oh, that was some fun, unintentional wordplay. There was a good metallic noise uh, when Val's sword and um, ESP's axe collide. It makes a katang. I like the katang, too. We got some new, different sound effects in this, and I appreciated that. It was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you like the best? Much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel. I had a couple of choices. One was more sinister and one was goofy. Okay. I'm going to go with the uh, the sinister one. The editorializing about the uh, the chicken man creeping on Strange. Mm. Creeping up on Strange, I should sure. say. The skulker's stark form is swathed in a great cloak that jerks and sways nervously in the air. As if alive. Much like the tale of some savage jungle cat poised to strike. Oh, pretty good. That's exciting. Yeah, I noticed you went into your Venom Between Song banter voice. How can I not? Through that. This narration is a bit strong for you. Buried alive. This next bit of narration is going to rip your balls off. <laughs> it's called Xenogenesis. I also had a couple to choose from. Both of mine were goofy. One of them is the Beast when he is in the Avengers Mansion and is excited that the trap has caught what he is unaware is a Jack Norris. As the Kelsey Grammer Beast would be. I feel like this is a more fun-loving, less Kelsey Grammer-esque Beast. I feel like the Beast took on more Kelsey Grammer properties in the 90s. And eh, back then, he's more of a... Well, maybe still Kelsey Grammer, but a less Frasery beast. More of a <laughs> Kelsey young. Grammer in uh, Down Periscope or in his off time when he is a totally berserk, out-of-control Hollywood actor. Also, apparently just completely wasted during every Cheers filming. Like, apparently just like totally passed out, inebriated, and then would wake up in time to deliver his dialogue flawlessly <laughs> And then collapse again. Oh my goodness. Well, wiggle my whiskers. Stark's million dollar security system has finally caught someone. Ring, ring. Wiggle my whiskers. That's a a fun thing for a a hair suit blue gentleman to say. It's pretty cute. The other thing that I really enjoyed was Dollar Bill when he is accosted by police officers after all of his cohort have disappeared to another dimension. And he says... Don't shoot, guys. I'm clean. Honest. Don't. Yow, did you see that? I like the implication that Dollar Bill generally has drugs on him. Mm -hmm. I feel like that maybe got snuck by the censors. It's like, don't don't shoot, cops. I'm clean. Honest. Mm -hmm. My stash is at home. So I thought that was fun. That's uh, right when um, Devil Hunter? Devil Slayer. Devil Slayer. It's awkward because Demon Hunter is a much better name and is... Just flows off the tongue better. But Devil Slayer, I mean, it's partly just because I'm not used to thinking of a devil being a thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is the devil and many demons. So it makes it seem like he's just after the one guy. And that guy's not dead. So he's bad at his job. 
It would be like if instead of Blade Vampire Slayer, it was Blade Dracula Slayer. Yeah, but yeah, anyway, so I'm sorry. Yes, you were saying just... No, that's just the scene in which um, Devil Slayer and Valkyrie have been fapped into another dimension. <laughs> okay, be fair, Corey. They've been flapped, not fapped. Fapped <laughs> into another dimension, which I don't know if that's any better. That's the, I think it is better, actually. That's the sound effect. <laughs> that is the sound effect that is used there. I don't think the implication is that they were masturbated into ceasing to exist. It didn't mean that at the time. I don't believe so. It was a different time. Masturbation made a totally different sound. <laughs> well, people hadn't figured out how to do it right yet. <laughs> they were still experimenting. It's the 70s. Every issue of a Defenders comic has a best defender and also a worst offender. In this issue, who was your best defender? Val did a pretty good job. She cut a table in half. Sure. She immediately detected something was off when they got to the Felix Club, mm-hmm. trusted her intuition, didn't do a great job not engaging in battle with somebody that probably would have been better as an ally than an enemy. Sure, but in her defense, what she saw was a colorfully costumed guy with a weapon attacking an apparently unarmed woman in civilian gear. So, well, in general, I agree that it is way too much of a trope, the accidental misunderstanding between heroes. I feel like this is a more understandable one. Especially when you factor in that from Devil Slayer's side of the equation, he has been canonically paranoid since his return from Vietnam. I also had Val as my choice. My actual backup was Devil Slayer. Just, I don't think he maybe counts as a defender yet. It looks like they're headed in the direction of being allies, but at this point they're still pretty adversarial. But he did a really good job in terms of combat, in terms of fending off Three very powerful foes single-handedly. Yeah, tough dude. Good runner-up. Yeah. Conversely, who was your worst offender? So, my heart wants to vote for Jack Norris for being such a bumbling dummy. Yeah. But logic dictates that potentially causing the destruction of the world by getting kicked in the head and losing the eye of Agamotto. (laughs) I gotta go with Strange. Yeah, I also went with Steve. I had a backup choice of the Hulk. Just the way that... Dr. Bob was so dismissive of Valkyrie when she's like, hey, I sense that something's really off about that guy. And he's just like, no, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. As long as they're almost naked ladies, nothing could go wrong here. He's pretty excited about the service and the free booze. Yeah, he's looking to order some lasagna. Big cup of coffee. It's not the Garfield Club. It is in my heart. But yeah, I too went with Steve. Bad job. you got to hang on to that eye of Agamotto. It's important. It is. All right. Two Vels, two Steves. In addition to a best defender and a worst defender, every issue of a Defenders comic also has one character who has to act in a way contrary to his previously established character or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they've just got to be a sucker. In this issue, who was your sucker? Along with being the worst, I also had Steve Strange as the sucker because he was remarkably self-reflective and not defensive, perhaps because he was alone at the end, but he's sitting there and he's just like, whoa, man, I really fucked up bad, which he doesn't often that sit there and say true. that. That is true. He does not. 
I was tempted to go with Wong as my sucker. Just at the beginning of the issue, he senses that something is wrong and terrible is about to happen. But he's like, but what do I know? I'm just a manservant. I'm sure Steve will take care of everything. But I couldn't actually choose that because unfortunately, I keep forgetting that the Wong that we've kind of created in our post-narrative tales is not the canonical Wong. I think throughout these issues that we've covered, we're on issue 58, and we've seen him say maybe five or six things throughout that time, and most of them have been along the self-deprecating lines that he has here. It is weird, though, how he has evolved into a totally different, more fleshed-out character in my mind. So instead, I decided to go with Kyle, who by not appearing in this issue, I think was really acting in a way that is very un-Kyle-like, especially when the rest of his compatriots are going to a fancy rich person's club where the ladies are dressed like sexy cats. These are things that he has previously shown a great deal of interest in. And uh, by sitting this one out, I, I feel like he's really acting out of character. For the reasons you said, I will allow it, but I don't know. I guess from now on we're allowed to say somebody who doesn't show up is a sucker. If it is uncharacteristic of them not to show up in a situation outlined, I think that's fair. Okay, granted. Good choice. Thank you. What was your favorite panel? Oh boy. I think my favorite one was on page 26, and I called it Space Grid. And it's after Devil Slayer has zapped himself and Val to some other dimension and there's a grid and then in front of that there's a bunch of planetary stuff and yeah I had the same one actually I called it uh Tron planetarium mm. because that's what it looked like to me like a planetarium but on, on a Tron type holodeck grid it is really really cool looking and yeah I think that is probably my favorite as well although I also really like the opening page which is just uh Steve splayed out sleeping on a chair. It's one of the few pages that is inked by Klaus Janssen, and I just really like the execution of it. Yeah, it's real good. What do you think that Devil Slayer is drinking when he is at the Felix Club? Because it looks like he's got a glass of white wine with a maraschino cherry in it. Yeah, it's a Zima Manhattan. I don't know. I mean, it's in a wine glass, not a Manhattan glass. I gotta believe that your fancier Garfield clubs, they're gonna have... The, proper, the glass. proper glassware for something. Let's see, this is 78, so it's probably uh, Osti Spumanti with the cherry. I can see that being the case. He may have just asked for a like, glass of Everclear and then put a cherry in it so it looks fancier. Wine glass of vodka. Yeah, just yeah. give me a wine glass of uh, grain alcohol, but uh, put a cherry in it. i reading something in one of the local papers, Willamette Week or something, that was, it was bartender's making a list of the characteristics of the people based on the drinks that they would order. Do you mm -hmm. remember that? And the one was a vodka neat is for alcoholic dads. The one that always used to drive me crazy would be somebody would ask for a Long Island and then say, and make it strong or make it a double. And I was like, okay, a Long Island is essentially a glass full of liquor with a floater of Coke and sour mix on it. I can't make a double. A double would just be me giving you a second glass. Mm -hmm. But... I would be so annoyed with people doing that. I wouldn't explain that. What I would do would be I would just make them a slightly weaker Long Island, but omit most of the alcohol except for gin. <laughs> and it so would it taste tasted, bad. It would taste strong. strong. 
and they would be happy and I would be happy. Oh, that's a funny story. I haven't had one of those in a very long time, and I think that's fine. I think that is fine. No long silence. <laughs> you don't say that like you've had no long Island. Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what are the Hulk's rules? I feel like the takeaway for the Hulk and, and the rest of us from this story is a powerful lesson about the importance of knowledge of self. Hmm. Um, taking the time to get to know who you are and to be comfortable with that makes you a more effective person in general. So when somebody says like, oh my gosh, you're a demon. Like, I'm not demon. I am Hulk. I am the strongest there is. I'm going to smash you badly. Hmm. And uh, I don't know. I think that's something we could all benefit from. Yeah, it's self-knowledge and confidence that he's really displaying there. Mm -hmm. Good for him. Yeah. I had the Hulk's rule being, if you start a fight in a fancy restaurant, there are going to be consequences. Should be Valkyrie's rule. I know, I know. And one would have thought that she might have learned it before, but she saw something that needed to be done and she did it anyway. Hulk started fights all over the city in every situation. But the ones that get the most rapid response and get the business owners to call the cops immediately is rich people's restaurants. Mm -hmm. And so just don't start a fight in a fancy restaurant. You're going to get the cops called on you. Mm -hmm. You won't get any beans? Nope. Throw your beanless ass out on the street. Mm. And that's the Hulk's rules. All right. Well, Corey, despite the fact that he did appear briefly in this issue, I still feel like we've got some wongs to write. Sure. So, in the year of our Lord 1978 and the month of our Lord April, what Wongs needed writing? I think it's come up in the past that uh, we've established Wong has a, a friendship with uh, President Jimmy Carter. Mm -hmm. uh, they've met before. He's he's influenced President Carter on, on other matters of state. In addition to that advisory role, there's a friendship as well. So Carter was was actually pretty excited for the uh, the premiere of the um, the miniseries uh, Dallas. Dallas premiere of uh, the original set of the episodes came out on, on the second of the month. And so, yeah, called Wong. I was like, oh, this is pretty exciting. I have to go to the White House and have some snacks and hang out with President Carter and watch Dallas. There was a subtext, though, for oh. that invitation, which was that uh, President Carter had something weighing heavily on his mind, which was that he had to make a decision whether or not to move forward with a uh, weapons program for the neutron bomb. Oh, dear. Which is an atomic weapon... The idea being it kills people primarily through uh, the fallout and the radiation, but leaves the buildings relatively intact. I remember the Weirdos song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some scary shit. Mm -hmm. and really troubling. Not that the regular atomic bomb is much better. But at any rate, under the guise of Let's Watch Dallas, <laughs> brings Wong over, lays this heavy trip on him. And Wong's like, uh, don't do that. Hmm. We can find other ways to resolve our troubles. And um, a few days later on the 7th, as a result of that, Carter halted the development on it um, for the rest of his time in the administration. So good job, Wong. Good job, Carter. Very nice. It was a tumultuous month for Wong in a lot of ways. At the end of this issue, we see that Doctor Strange is using the orb of Agamotto to spy on the cult and see the sacrifices that they are making. Now, Steve decides to avert his gaze at the last minute lest he be driven to madness by the visions that he sees of the extra-dimensional demons that once ruled the Earth. 
Wong, unfortunately, was watching over his shoulder during that exchange, and he did not avert his eyes. And he was very, very troubled by the images that he saw. His mind wasn't able to fully comprehend them, but he was in a bad way. And so it was in this kind of state of existential crisis, in a lot of ways, that he started to seek out different venues of expression. And so he went to Philadelphia. There was an art exhibit there going on at the uh, Philadelphia Museum of Art that was a exhibit of Beatrice Wood's art. She was an abstract artist who was uh, part of the New York Dada movement. But she also did some uh, work that was, as she described it, free expressions of the unconscious and kind of abstract art that she was not aware of the things that she was drawing. And, and Wong saw these pieces and he was very moved by them. But he also thought, maybe this could be the way that I can deal with these traumatic images that I don't understand that I've seen. And so he started doing some experiments with automatic drawing and uh, just trying to unburden his psyche of the horrific images that he saw uh, beyond the veil. And he ended up doing some sketches and he, he felt better. And, uh, he left them in the hotel room where he was staying in Philadelphia. Those sketches got picked up by a man who worked for the Philadelphia Phillies organization and got used to create the Philly Fanatic, <laughs> the, uh, the mascot for the Phillies, uh, who was based on these images of horror from beyond the dimension that Wong had experienced. And that is why on April 25th, the Philly Fanatic made his debut. Uh, one of the most popular uh, baseball mascots ever. And that was the Wong that needed writing. <laughs> they still have the same mascot? Uh, yeah, I believe they do. Oh, man. Enduring. Thank you for joining us as we discussed uh, The Defenders number 58. It was a real time. Woo! Woo, indeed. Couldn't agree with you more, Corey. Mm. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you would like to find us in some other aspect of the internet, maybe try doing some automatic writing and see if maybe we'll contact you from beyond the pale. Or just uh, type tighten up the defense into a Google search. When you do, a bunch of things will pop up. You get a, uh, what's it, a Facebook page. You get your, your Twitter account. You get your Instagram. You got a Tumblr. There's a LinkedIn profile in case you want to hire us to do some work for you. We're available. Sure. I'm available anyway. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, We're hire us. fully available. Yeah. Give us high-paying corporate jobs. Maybe we can be your agent of fortune. You won't be sorry. And if you can't find us in any of those venues, then maybe just look inside your heart. We'll be there. We've always been there. We always will be there. Can't get rid of us. We like it in your heart. Warm. Hello. Well, I think that uh, that implies that there's some echo going on. I think these people have full hearts that are warm, not empty hearts that would echo. Sorry, guys. <laughs> if you'd like to donate to us monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a bunch of bonus materials. You get episodes of What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. That is a monthly podcast that my wife Lisa and I record about Howard the Duck. You also get a bunch of other bonus episodes. You get uh, access to a bunch of videos that I've made. Going forward, there will be weekly videos that are available to our $5 and up donors. And it would also just be a really nice way for you to show support. Don't necessarily think of it as paying for the rewards that you get, but uh, just 
a way of supporting and, and showing appreciation for the show that apparently you listen to every month that we work pretty hard on. <laughs> hard on. <laughs> anyway, thanks and thanks for joining us. Until next time. I hate Mondays. Bye. And they know it. It's probably the chemicals in this tree glass. That's probably what it is. Not glass. Goblet. Tree goblet. Do you think you might get some tree powers or possibly some goblet powers? I hope so. Mm. I hope it doesn't work on the uh, homonym theory, where instead of getting the powers of a drinking receptacle, you would get the powers of a small goblin. A goblet. <laughs> Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. <laughs> <laughs>